What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and on this episode, it's a corker. All right? I don't know what to tell you. If you got a cork, put a cork in it, because this episode, we're talking to legendary producer. Do you know what a legend is? Do you remember Legends of the Hidden Temple? Omak? He was a stone figurehead. He was on every episode. He saw everything. He knew everything. That's Scott Burns, all right? He's made of stone but full of wisdom. And he shares it with us today about his historic career, as well as, specifically, Roadrunner Records albums he was a part of, and even more specifically, Deicide's 1997 release, Serpents of the Light, which was the last record that Scott produced for Roadrunner. And we're talking also with author David Gelke in collaboration, because the Scott Burns Sessions, A Life and Death Metal, 1987 to 1997, is a book that was just recently released through Decibel Magazine. You can pick it up at decibelmagazine.com. And David Gelke, of course, uh, also penned the obituary book, which was called Turned Inside Out. Also, uh, of course, friends of the show, Meepsters, former guests. And that's what's important. That means we're friends for life, I think. So, Scott Burns, David Gelke, we talk about the records, and uh, we talk about Deicide, and Deicide is an interesting band, you know? They uh, they got Glenn Benton, who's got that Harry Potter scar on his forehead, big fan of the series, battled Voldemort, uh, both as a child, as an adult as well, and so this is the, the, the mark he bears. And also... I call their album Once Upon the Cross, Once Upon a Cross, many times on this episode. Probably because I was thinking of the made-for-TV Disney Channel original movie Once Upon a Star. Starring, starring, the star of Once Upon a Star is, of course, Catherine Hagel uh, of Grey's Anatomy fame. She was also in uh, Knocked Up. She is the titular woman who was, in fact, knocked up by... The red-haired guy, oh, not not Joe Rogan, Seth Rogan, Seth Rogan, who of course would never be able to get Catherine Hagel in real life, not because he's not an attractive man, which he's not, but because Catherine Hagel, not a friendly person by all accounts, not unlike Glenn Benton. But you know, the thing about uh, Once Upon a Cross as well, me saying that over and over again, is it's, you know, the album's called Once Upon the Cross. And that's a lot of pressure for that cross. You know, there's three crosses in that story. I don't know if you know your Bibles that well. I know Glenn knows his because he's um, talking about it a lot. You know, I always read that Glenn does believe in God. He just doesn't like him, which, you know, hard to argue. Hard to argue. But uh, there's three crosses in the story. You know, Jesus, I'm sure that's the one that uh, the boys are referring to. Jesus is on one cross, but there's two other crosses. There's two other men being crucified for being thieves, which is quite the harsh punishment. I mean, I stole cardamom today. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? I, I don't want to be crucified. I think that 365 Seasonings should be crucified for trying to charge me $15 for the little— You can't see my hand right now, but I have—it's like two inches worth of cardamom. Okay, and I'm going to use, what, a quarter teaspoon? There's no worry I'm paying that. So they're crucified for being a thief. Now, Jesus crucified for blasphemy because he's saying, yo, I'm the son of God. Uh, And Glenn and the gang, famously blasphemous, 
but never crucified, but he does have a cross on him. So it is full circle. It does all make sense. And Scott Burns and David Gelke and I talk all about it. We also talk about some lesser known things that Scott did, like Gravity Kills, which was a band that I liked a lot when I was younger. Famously, I have a picture with the band The Used, and I'm wearing a Gravity Kills shirt. Famously. Very famous picture. I think it's in a museum somewhere. Also, we talk about, you know, kind of the legacy of Scott uh, being so well-known and so sought after early on and kind of how that's come back full circle and that he's gotten his flowers in these more modern times um, when maybe he wasn't fully respected and, and appreciated as much as he should have been in between then and now. But it's a great conversation. Scott and David are great guys. And if this is your first time listening to the show, thank you so much for joining us. There's lots of other episodes you'd probably be interested in, such as several about suffocation, sepultura, obituary, and then maybe uh, albums and bands you haven't heard of, which I encourage you to check out, because often, even if you don't know or enjoy the music, the stories are always interesting, and it's really cool. As well as this episode in particular, you could have heard early already. You could have heard it weeks ago on patreon.com slash meetmepod. There's also bonus episodes there of past guests and the show Choo Choo, which is me and a friend talking about soundtracks. Right now there's the singles soundtrack. Remember that? Also from the 90s. Not quite death metal, but close. There are a lot of dead people on it, and so I think that counts. So check that out if you'd like. Please subscribe to the show so you know new episodes are coming out. And uh, give it a five-star rating. Give it a five-once-upon-a-star rating. I'm told it really helps the show a lot, but it definitely helps me out personally. It makes me feel good. But that's enough housekeeping. Without further ado, let's slither into this conversation with Scott Burns, David Gelke, and I right now. I know that uh, you did the obituary book, of course, and I read that. I learned to read just for the occasion. What an irony is that a band that never bothered to write lyrics now has a book written about them. I always thought that was pretty cool. That was good, yeah. But, Ryan, uh, that is amazing. <laughs> uh, I like, I mean, there's few, very few things that I've, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. But, yeah. um, is that, uh, I guess that would be the, the first question, and I guess I'll ask you, uh, David, you know, how did it come to be that this book about Scott, of course, who better to write a book about? So I'm, I'm not uh, questioning the motive, but um, you know, how did that come to be that that this happened? Yeah, Scott and I got to know each other really well during the making of the obituary book. Probably talked three or four times, and we we just immediately hit it off, and it quickly became apparent that Scott and I were aligned on many things, whether it be socially, politically. Uh, just real life in general, we we sort of are on the same wavelength with that. Uh, maybe the only other thing we differ on is sports teams. He likes all the Tampa teams, and I'm in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm a Pirates fan, but I'm a, I'm a Browns fan, stuck in Steelers, still Steeler Nation, if you want to call it that. So that's probably where Scott and I differ. But no, uh, Scott and I hit it off really well for the obituary book. We stayed friends once that wrapped, and it wasn't long after I turned it in that Scott had mentioned he had been thinking about doing a project of his own. Would I be interested in helping out? You know, Scott, Scott and Tim Hubbard, who's the photographer for a lot of those Roadrunner bands, you know, that was, that was the guy down there shooting all of them. So it was really Tim's idea. It's like, Hey, I got all these pictures. Let's pair it with some of Scott's stories from the studio and we could put something together. So Scott was kind enough to ask me to help them put together the project. Of course I said yes, within two seconds. And we hit the ground running pretty quickly. I mean, the great thing was, is since we'd already talked about obituary, we didn't have to talk about obituary at all during the making of this book. I mean, we, we were able to cross them off the list right away because Scott and I had spoken about them so much. So that made it really easy. But no, it was it was really a really perfect segue from finishing one project into the next. You couldn't have asked for the next the, the next project to be what it was for me. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about obituary and, uh, you know, he was, you know, at the time, very knowledgeable and he would ask me a lot of good questions. I mean, stuff that, you know, would delve into things and he would come back around and vet them and check on that. 
And like I said, is, you know, besides doing interviews and stuff, you know, we we got along good just talking on the phone and things like that. And then, like he mentioned, is my buddy Tim, who was a photographer for a lot of those Red Runner records, records that I did. And my buddy, you know, we'd grown up together from high school and stuff. And um, he's the one that actually said is, hey, we should do like a photo book of all the bands you've done and you could talk about it. And it quickly became obvious that, you know, that we were ill-prepared or ill-equipped to try and write a real book. And um, so I said, you know what, let's talk to David. I said, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe those guys will say, fuck, I don't care. But but let's talk to him. I said, he's a really good guy. And, uh, you know, so it all worked out. And it, like I said, is, you know, we had spent a lot of time with obituary, so... It, it, it worked out perfectly and I can't, couldn't be any happier. And like I said, is it because, you know, he does a great job and the really, the whole thing about the book is even though it's titled the Scott Burns sessions and I, I get it to a point is it's really about hopefully that the, the fans of all the bands, it takes them down a trip down memory lane of all the goodness of the bands. And that, period of music and era because it was a great time and i was lucky to be a part of it well yeah that kind of leads me into my next question which you essentially just answered so it might be a little redundant but uh you know what was your goal of the book because like you said it's uh it's the scott burns story and and the scott burns story deserves to be told too i know that it would be weird for you to say that but i'll say it uh so that was Mm. ultimately the goal is just to kind of uh put a spotlight on that era of music it was sort of all things colliding at once, right? I don't know if we'll see that again with a scene igniting like the death metal scene did, uh, a studio so centralized and everything like Morris Sound and, mm. you know, central to you, Ryan, a, a label like Roadrunner signing all the death metal bands and Monty mm-hmm. having confidence in Scott saying, okay, I have all these young, raw bands Scott, I don't have a lot of money to give you. I'm going to give you a week or 10 days, five grand. Can you make these bands sound good for the first time? And that was almost unprecedented at the time. Because as you know, Ryan, Monty just kept on sending bands down to Scott from like 1990 to 92 and, and beyond, I guess. But that was the goal. And also was... You know, you think about a lot of the high-profile bands Scott did, Obituary, DSI, Death, Cannibal, all those bands. But there's also like several layers underneath of bands that may not be as known that Scott did that deserve some some mention. I mean, Scott and I had many moments where we would dig up bands that admittedly Scott hadn't listened to for 30 years. And they were like, holy crap, these guys are incredible. Now I remember why I recorded them. So it was really a combination of, yeah, shedding light on what Scott's work was, his production techniques, more sound recording, the bands, the big bands who made all these influential records, and then some of the lesser known bands that may not, well, frankly, they probably never would have ended up in a book had we not pursued doing something with Scott. So it was really, it was a really nice thing all coming together at once. Now, Scott, of course, you're mainly known for your work with death metal bands, but I know that you had some uh, tangential relationships with other bands. You know, the uh, the Arise record has these like hints of industrial mm-hmm. music, and then World Demise has a lot of industrial influence, too. And I know that you did a couple songs with Gravity Kills, who are like a, a pseudo industrial band. Can you tell me about your relationship with them? Yeah, so when Gravity Kills, they just they had uh i guess they were they were popular and um they were on the radio and things like that and i guess they were heavy but more industrial ministry-ish type you know probably not death metal or anything like that per se And uh, but they had gotten a deal to do uh, something for the soundtrack for Escape from New York, David. Escape from L.A. 
Escape from LA. I'm thank you. No, big city. Sorry, I'm an old guy. So anyway, but they wanted a heavier version of their song, and so they sent me the tapes, and that was basically it. And uh, we worked on that with Brian, Super Brian Ben Scoder, who David talks about, who was, you know, my right hand wheel man and all that did a lot of the drum programming but no related to i know what ryan's getting at the effects you hear on arise and world demise mm -hmm. scott mentioned there was a guy at the studio brian ben scoder his nickname was super brian because he was mm -hmm. he was a young guy but he had this propensity to be able to fix things and figure things out really quickly but he also was he wasn't a metal guy he really was into industrial music yeah, like nine inch nails and skinny yeah. poppy and that yeah. when it came time for for instance you think about arise for them to have the intros and the sound effects whether it's on arise the song or dead embryonic cells he was already there in the studio so scott was able to use him for that and probably even more prominent was on world demise because that was the only time as we know obituary said hey we're going to experiment we're going to get outside the usual obituary box we're, we're actually going to try something different here and the studio already had Brian there. Brian used to go to the Tardy's house and, and would horse around with keyboards and sound effects and play things for the guys as they started building the songs. And then when they were in the studio, more sound had a bank of samples that could be used. And Trevor told me the story of they'd plop in the, the CD and they would just rifle through all these samples and sound effects and figure out what would work well for the certain songs. So brian really came handy with that sort of thing and it was just up to scott and at least for um world demise he co-produced it with a guy called dave nichols whose nickname was big shirt mm. uh, it was really their job to give it its sound and you could probably you could probably make the argument it's probably the best sounding obituary that that they did you know it was donald just to piggyback sorry briefly i don't know what david said is you know, like the 808, the sound of dropping those 60 hertz, you know, bass drum sounds and things like that. That was really De uh, Donald DT's idea. And like David just said is Donald had these ideas that he wanted to incorporate into the album. And Brian was very good. They had some money. And they bought the instruments, the keyboards, the drum machines, and things like that. Brian would work with Donald to, you know, to, in some ways, production, obviously, to incorporate that into the album to get his vision of how to incorporate things besides just straight ahead drums, guitar, and bass. So Super Brian was a big part of that. And, um, but yes, that was, and he came from a more techno, like David said, Nine Inch Nails ministry background. So it worked out quite well. And is that something you ever thought about kind of branching out a little bit more? Did you feel pigeonholed into the death metal thing? Or were you happy to be intimately just a part of that and kind of known for those those bands and that sound? Well, that's an interesting question. And David, I think we talk about it briefly in the book. In the beginning, you know, I never, I like all kinds of music, but I always liked extreme music. So I really didn't give a shit about being pigeonholed. So I was quite happy just to do stuff because I, I really not, I had no commercial aspect or whatever. And, you know, like we, I think David mentions, there's a band, The Wild Hearts, that called me and like a stupid thing. I was like, I don't do good bands like you guys or whatever from England. And, um, but down the road, I tended to sort of not regret it, but I did is because I'm happy with what I did is because I really wasn't looking for commercial success. But at the end, the scene starts, all scenes tend to die out and only a few of the bands tend to still carry on and make good classic records. Then I probably started to say, yeah, I'd like to try and do some other things. And as you said, Ryan, I definitely became pigeonholed and uh, no one 
brief aside is death metal wasn't cool really in the commercial sense when I was doing it back then it was really underground and so by the time I said hey, I'd like to try and do stuff nobody really wanted anything to do with me to be honest and I mean David you can probably speak a little no it's it's very true and Scott had hired we go into this pretty deeply into the book Scott Scott had hired a manager circa 94 95 to help him break into the major labels because you know you think of who scott's primary client was was roadrunner records monty at the time was shifting all his bands well first off he dropped a lot of the death metal bands you know case told him you know malevolent gorgut suffocation immolation mm -hmm. scott didn't do immolation but all the the death metal bands had to go minus obituary deicide and i guess you could even put sepulter off to the side but by then they were clearly no longer death metal so scott loses his primary client conversely you know monty's signing all these newer bands machine head fear factory cold chamber he wouldn't send them to scott they, they were going to sneep or ross robinson or colin richardson so scott's clientele started to thin out a little bit towards the mid 90s hence the need to try and break into the major labels but fortunately as great as scott was and all the fantastic work he did and how nice he was which we can't stress enough you know the majors wouldn't give him the time of day because not only was death metal a very dirty word but metal in general was a very dirty word come 1995 96 they wouldn't give scott the time of day no matter how good he could have taken x y and z mainstream band and made them sound so it was always interesting we talked about this a little bit is it always be interesting to think about what scott could have done had he been given a six-figure budget at a big studio whether it be more sound which could have easily accommodated that or a big studio in new york or los angeles but he never really got the chance the closest was and you know ryan you just mentioned them was gravity kills and kmfdm mm -hmm. but those are remixes and Scott got those because of his manager. But both bands, Kathy Nazari is her name. She's still still around. But yeah, so that was Scott was clearly pigeonholed. And then once you get to the end of Scott's career, I mean that's that's what he was known for. And by 1997, as we all know, death metal was was really on its last legs. You know, everything had shifted to new metal and black metal. And so it was sort of like the nice transition for Scott to ease into retirement. Well, that's the beauty of a hindsight from a pop culture perspective is that I do know kind of what you just, just to kind of recap what you said, you know, it came that Scott in the early days established himself and then he became like the it producer. And then he became like, I don't want to say a cliche, but you know, people had an idea of what his sound was. And now that's pretty good, though, cliche, I'll <laughs> take that. No, but, now, <laughs> but now looking back, it's kind of all reverence. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that just doesn't, highly regards Scott's work. And and I know that's probably even funnier for you, Scott, to deal with because you had to go through that time when it wasn't the case. But, um, you know, I'm glad that uh, you made it through to the other side where now you can just get your flowers and everyone kind of respects and uh, admires what you did. And now you got a, a book coming out about you. So, I mean, that's that's pretty cool. No, it is. But, Ryan, once again, is you have good insight. It. The suffocation record, the first one I did is people talk shit about it, like the worst record they ever heard, like besides the hardcore fans. I mean, the cynic stuff, some of those bands didn't have anything. But like you said, is and then even uh, once again is David I Mayhem, Euronymous, who's the guy that? Yeah, Euronymous for Mayhem. Yeah. Um, the anti-Scott Burns campaign, you know, no fun, no mosh, no core, no life. I, I think I got that, that mixed up. Here, but you know scott's image was crossed out on the back of the second pressing of mayhem's death crush so the norwegian black metal scene well maybe euronymous because he was sort of the leader of it all was anti-scott burns but as it turns out most of those bands had scott's records in their collection anyway but from a public standpoint they were all you know not not with the scott burns yeah. program and like i said previously is you know at the time i thought the guy was probably an asshole even though I, I thought black metal looked cool but i didn't think technically they could play as well but you know ryan i'll say this is he's a genius in hindsight because he realized that everything had become stale and that what was once like dan seagrave scott burns roadrunner death metal it was a, a five dollar pizza like hungry house and 
Sorry, guys. What I a reference to... to Hungry Howie's. Wow. <laughs> Choose your own <laughs> crust flavor. But I, I just mean is that it became prepackaged and everything. And and at the time is I thought, you know, who's this guy to rep? You know what I mean? I'm not I'm not a rich guy. I'm not Motley Crue. I'm not anything. But he, you know, things become stale, as David said. And so, but it is. You know, it's nice in the long term to think people thought you did a good job. And the only reason I'll say this is, is that I don't really give a fuck anymore what anybody, you know, they say my records sound good or bad. There are some that don't sound as good as others. Absolutely. And I don't think I'm the best producer engineer ever. I mean, we can argue about at the time that I was good for what they did. But nowadays, I think all the new bands sound better than what I did. But I will say is it bothers me. The biggest thing back in the day for what you said is, and David said was metal wasn't cool and death metal wasn't cool. And to me in 2023, the greatest thing is, is no one gives a fuck anymore. It's just metal, right? It's just anything. All these bands are big. No one says they have fucking growling vocals and no one talks about them. Like I said, I remember the cynic record when we tried to, show it around. I mean, no one gave a shit about their musicality as soon as they heard Masvidal and Tea Garden's vocals. It was just like, this is crap. It, and it, to the Senate guys and everybody is, I don't mean, I just mean in general to a broader, more commercial, like when you're trying to shop it, like Sepultura did and stuff like that. Is I'm just saying is, but in general, everybody, the death metal guys, we all had a fan base and stuff like that. But when you tried to go to a record label, forget about it. Forget about it. No one wanted anything to do with it. I mean, it was so. But but it all has worked out because look how now is. No one thinks anything about it. Everybody likes brutal vocals, and they're all big bands, and that's the best thing that could have ever happened. Yeah, no, that's true. And there's also like some revisionist history too that they were always big bands. That they were always popular. You know, that's uh. A thing that I always uh, yeah. am amused by. Yeah. They're like, oh, no, this was always cool. Everyone always liked it. Nobody shunned it. We were getting royalty checks that were huge. We just blew it all. That was it. So back on, going back to when you are nothing but revered, <laughs> you uh, you do a rise, and this is after you do a Beneath the Remains, but Andy Wallace ends up mixing it instead of you. Was that something that you suggested because you wanted a different... Uh, shine on it or i guess not from that <laughs> but uh why do you know why andy wallace became the mixer on it <laughs> yeah no me and andy wallace are best friends no anyway i never met him and listen uh it was obvious that roadrunner case monty doug Keogh, uh they all had Roadrunner had, even though they were considered death metal, Max's vocals still, and they had more happier riffs, and Andreas, don't take that wrong, but they had more chuggy bits and stuff like that. So uh, they had a lot more potential than a lot of the bands that I did. They didn't blast and things like that. So, and deservedly so, they wrote great songs. So by the time they got around to doing a rise, I mean, Roadrunner had pegged them as like, I think they thought this was a band that is bigger than all the bands that we had before. So they thought we need to get a real producer. And I'll, you know, I'm sure you could ask Monty that and I take no umbrage to that. But in other words, is they wanted a real rock metal producer. And that's when they started to say, you know, hey, let's take a rise and let's have it remixed because we think they're going to the next level. And I say this with all, you know, at the time, was I pissed? Sure. Anybody would be. We all have an ego. But it all makes sense, right? Because they thought they were their their next King Diamond, perhaps. You felt the writing was on the wall the day they showed up, actually, you know, Um you know, the great line you said to them was you noticed all the Sepultura guys had gained weight. You know, it was the first thing because when Scott had them for Beneath the Remains, they were dirt poor, um, not making any money. Beneath the Remains did well. They had Gloria Cavalera 
managing them. She was taking care of them and making sure they were fed, paid, all of the above. But Scott noticed the day they walked in the studio, think things had changed. It was different than when Scott had flo- flew down to Rio to do Beneath the Remains. When they came up to Morris Sound for a rise, it was a lot different. And, you know, the, it, we go into detail within the book and Monty and I have talked about this a lot. You know, Monty used to call Scott almost every day, bugging him about the Arise mixes, you know, and Scott or an assistant there would pick up the phone. This is, of course, pre-file trading. So, you know, you pick up the phone and Scott would blast the speakers for Monty to listen. And Monty would keep on going back to Scott saying, this is not what I want. So Monty flew down to Tampa. He'd only done it a, a few times to do so, maybe like two or three times. And he sat with Scott at the board at Morris Sound to try and get the mixes right. And it just wasn't coming together. And so that's why he reached out to Andy Wallace. And this was pre-Andy Wallace blowing up and being huge. So this was pre-Nevermind Andy Wallace. Pre He had done Slayer, but he still wasn't you know, Andy Wallace by then. And you know Scott's mix is out there. It's on YouTube and Roadrunner has included it in subsequent reissues of Rise. And it sounds great. It, it's, it's, it's def- it definitely holds up next year to Andy's but you also have to remember you know what Andy Wallace was working with was was more money and different type of equipment and that ability as a mixer to give it that bigger sound and so you know there's two sides of the coin Scott's mix is great the original mix is just fine Andy's mix is what it is and that's what Monty worked with and the rest is history I mean Arise has has sold quite well for Roadrunner and I think for Scott at least it's the album that has sold the most that he's in relation to so You know, the funny thing was, is the artwork, the heavy metal lobster was supposed to be for obituary and obituary, uh, Sepultura was supposed to get the cause of death artwork, Michael Whelan, right? But those, John had gotten obituary, I guess Sepultura really wanted the um, cause of death artwork and anyway, and it ended up going to them to obituary instead of uh, Sepultura. Right. So anyway, that's interesting because the album covers could have been switched or at least it could have been uh, Arise could have had the cause of death artwork. But, but you know, but back to the thing was, you know, it, it was different. The thing that was different was is they were the first band commercially successful that I had done They'd gotten so big that the labels really cared about financially. Most of my stuff was underground. So this was a different thing because, like I said, is and then they go off. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. And uh, they're great guys. And I love them. So. On the other end of it, Scott, you know, you uh, you did the first Suffocation record, like you mentioned, and then they end up, for various reasons, not getting to record Breeding the Spawn with you, which is so poorly received that they do come back to you for Pierce From Within. So that's kind of like the other way around, where they're like, hey, Scott knows how to fix this, because this didn't go the way we wanted to, so we're going to come back to him. When you when that, When something like that happens, which probably didn't happen a whole lot... What is your approach to the project where you want to make it an improvement from where it was before? Like, how do you, when you're working with a band multiple times like this, what is your idea when they come in to, to take it to the next level? Or is that not the idea? Is it to make sure that you maintain what they came to you for in the first place? I don't know if it's, I mean, that's a good question, Ryan, but I don't know if it's ever like an, next level per se is i mean we would always try and talk about at least trying to make a record that was musically as good and that we weren't selling out or not you know or just mailing it in that the songs were good and things like that I guess on my end, as the engineer, I would try and make sure that technically and that sonically 
we sounded good. So, but I think the thing was, is that we just really tried to make sure that in other words, that no one would say as much as possible in the beginning that the, the previous album was much better than the other one. Now, the most I could ever do is perhaps is, you know, listen, I'm not a producer per se. David can attest to this. I've talked about it is I didn't rewrite any songs or anything. I would make comments, criticisms and say something and mention it to the band. But it was always up to the band to make that decision and say, hey, like, I don't like this or I think this we're going to have this guitarist play this part instead of the other one. But in other words, is I was not a Nazi saying like, you know, there was no it's not like a commercial pop album. So, I mean, when like what suffocation is, I think in a way that's a little different thing because. To my my good friend, Monty, you know, they were trying to break the Scott Burns, Morris sound, death metal, cliche uh, bond. Like with Malevolent Creation, there was a gentleman that they chose also to go away to and uh, mark something to go to and record. And with Suffocation, the same thing is, and it wasn't so much the band that wanted to, it was the label. And I think the, the biggest thing to go back to what you said about, Ryan, you brought up a good point about how, Everything back in the day was like, you know, everybody was big or everything was like, it wasn't. And at the same time, though, I was pigeonholed. There was very few places to go. You could go to Sweden. You could go see Colin or whatever. But there really wasn't anybody that did extreme fast music. And so because Roadrunner had signed so many bands you know, it became a cliche and, you know, obviously I, with my success became a part of that. Yeah. Breeding the spawn was Monty's mistake. He admitted that he should have sent the band to more sound to do it. And I think everyone can agree. Breeding the spawn does not sound very good. So then when they send them back down to work with Scott for the next record, it was sort of like a kumbaya moment. The Suffo guys were happy to be there. Monty was happy with the sound that sort of righted the ship there. But yeah, it's sort of like the inverse there, Ryan, right? You know, like, and uh, by the time Malevolent came back to Scott, they were on a different label than Roadrunner. But even those guys didn't want, the guy's name was Mark Pinsky, and he opened up a digital. The difference was, is that at least in malevolent situation they went to a digital recording which was still a new technology at the time and the records after 10 10 commandments and everything just didn't sound very good so then later in the 90s that's why they came back to scott and so i think malevolent as well as suffo are two good examples of bands realizing that yeah we're probably better off working with Scott, then you had some bands that wouldn't go anywhere, no matter what, like Deicide didn't want to record anywhere else, but with Scott, you know, they wanted to keep working with Scott, even after Cannibal as well. You know, it was never, never discussed for amongst the Cannibal Corpse guys that they would ever record anywhere else. Atheists for the third album, they, they were under a lot of pressure for elements to go somewhere else. So they did. And Kelly admitted it, that it was mistaken. Yeah. We probably should have done that record with scott so there's definitely two sides to the story i mean with scott you 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 knew what you were going to get you knew you were going to get a great sounding product at an affordable price but you know labels by then were looking to try something different for better or for worse sometimes it worked out like sepultura and, and sometimes in most cases it did not work out going away from scott burns so yeah. definitely two sides to that that argument i get it that you get tired of a studio, a sound, a producer, et cetera. I fully get that. And looking back on it, I understand. But the one thing I think that the labels misconstrued is that these guys, okay, so Sepultura took off. But, you know, I'll even say this for Andy Wallace's mix. Nobody gives a fuck if it was my mix or Andy Wallace's mix. You either like a rise or you don't like a rise. And it's not going to sell you five records more. Now, 
when you talk about commercial bands with pop appeal and things like that, where you get a producer that goes in to change parts or adds a bunch of stuff, that's a whole different cat. But the stuff I did, listen, kids fucking like it. I mean, you talk about Bathory, you talk about Possessed and stuff, Celtic Frost, No Hard Feelings, those records, Venom, they don't sound very good by today's standards, but people fucking love them. We all love them and swear by them. And not one person fan is ever going to say, I'm not buying that Venom record because I don't think it sounds good. And forgive me, you know, all <laughs> I don't mean to say, or any Scott Burns record that sounded like shit because there's some that I did that weren't as good as others. Fans are fans. It's when you get to a commercial level that people care about production. Well, you said something that I found interesting that um, you kind of, well, you didn't quite say this, but let me <laughs> clarify with you, I guess, that you kind of consider yourself more an engineer than a producer. You're just there to get the sound the band wants. You're not uh, collaborating with them to form a song or anything like that. Yes. I mean, listen, I have definite opinions on songs and rather like you went along, you know, you should do eight bars instead of 16 bars or that riff isn't the best riff or things like that. But I'm not that I played bass as well as you trombone, but I'm not that good and I'm not into writing anyone's songs. And that's not my whole that wasn't my whole thing was I was just punk rock, metal, rock and roll and just record and try and make the best recording possible, you know, for the artist. You know, my opinion is once again is the liaison to make sure that it sounds good, that you sound like you spent some money, that it didn't sound like shit. You know what I mean? Rather, regardless if you think my record sounds like shit is, but it sounds like you paid some money for it and you just didn't record it in your bathroom. But uh, no, I, you know, w did I have opinions? David talks about it on like some of the obituary records or whatever, where Monty and the label would say to me and we would agree that maybe we should change some things. But I never wrote a song, anything. I would just voice my opinion and it was up to the band. And that was it. And, you know, if they said, fuck you, that's fine. I'd say, sure, no problem. They wrote the songs. So. And it's not, once again, as it comes back to, it's not pop music. We're not Taylor Swift. We're not trying to sell 10 million records. We have fans that love us and just say, fuck, this is heavy. This is brutal. That's it. Well, I do want to hear the Scott Burns production of Taylor Swift for sure. So, I mean, I think that that's trigger those drums and she's re-recording all of her albums there's still time to yeah, get in on that still time scott and she you mentioned a trombone why why wasn't trombone used on any of these records why don't i hear any <laughs> ska dia side songs i did want to ask you is there a particular record that your production i know that uh david you kind of already mentioned that arise is probably commercially the most successful thing that scott's been a part of but scott is there a production that you were a part of that you personally feel the most um proud of and validated by that you you contributed to well that's difficult for me to say because i you know then you're asking me to pick amongst my kids the way i look at it my parents but, did it very easily it was my brother <laughs> i think in i'll answer your question but first i will generalize second I preferred in the day when the bands probably did their earlier records and they came in and they were just ready to go, right? For good or bad sounded, they had their songs, they've been rehearsing, sitting in a sweaty little stinky 10 by 10 rehearsal hall and they wanted to show the world, I'm fucking badass. And so when they would come in, we would just roll it and we would, like I said, is we try and fix as much stuff, kick drums or whatever to make them sound good, overdub guitars, overdub things to, to, to get it to sound good. I, you know, 
the further along the bands got, the more money they had and the more time they'd been on the road and the more they wrote their songs in the studio or had less time to think. To me is, I don't know if those records are any better looking back and forth. And I'm sorry, guys, all the bands, I don't know what to say. But if I had to pick one record that I really enjoyed, and it's not because they're my favorite band, but... It would probably be the Terrorizer record. Because those guys just came in. We fucking winged it. It was an 8-track. Pete, I couldn't even fucking... I didn't have a 24-track machine. I fucking sampled his kick drums live. I put it all out like the obituary was slowly rot. Reminds me of the same thing is... Just, I had a stereo mix of drums and eight tracks, and then you know Jesse's guitar and Oscar, and we let it fly, and it was done in a day. And I'm not saying it sounds the best, anything, but it does have a feel. And to me, is you know that, that that's it. Is that it was nice in the day when everybody was like. Hey, I'm here. I'm showing up. I'm badass. Let's go. Ten Commandments. That's another one. I mean, all of them. Slowly Rod, the Deicides, all of them, the Cannibals. I just mean is in general that, you know, when they were, they were, everybody was hungry. Sepultura, you mentioned, was hungry. All those bands were like, fuck you guys. We're here. We got our shot. Roadrunner signed us. Metal Blade signed us. Earache signed us. We're going to show you that we're badass. My favorite Scott production, and he will disagree with me on this because there's one little thing that got tripped up there, I guess, and it wasn't Scott's doing. It's Death's Human Record. And that was, of course, when Chuck brought it. Sean Reiner to Paul from Cynic and Steve DiGiorgio from Sadis on bass. Reiner's drum sound. It's probably Scott's best drum sound there. And it's probably a combination of Reiner, of course, but then Scott capturing it all there. Guitar sound was great. That's when Chuck started to move away from Randall's into the Marshall Valve states. So the tone is a little bit better. The one thing that Scott rejects, uh, uh, re- um, regrets, excuse me, and Steve DiGiorgio knocks him on it all the time to this day is that the bass is buried on human, but that was done at the direction of Chuck, who said, hey, Scott, can you lower the faders a little bit on Steve's bass? I'm not feeling it. And so Scott and Steve have clearly, they're, they're great friends to this day. They have since made up. I can hear the bass. You, you do have to hunt for it a little bit. They, they sort of rectified that on individual thought patterns. The next record but if i had to choose scott production i would say human because that's really the jumping off point for that next phase of death which chick carried chuck into the rest of his career and that's you know one of the most influential records that chuck excuse me scott did yeah it was a wonderful record you're absolutely right dave but i mean production wise it is a production wise it's probably one of my best things ever and like you said it's with steve with Sean, I mean, God bless him. I mean, you can't say enough wonderful things about that, man. Scott, what's the last record that you produced or engineered? Technically, Scott's active career, it would have been Despise the Sun by Suffocation. And um, 1998 was the last thing that Scott did. More recently, though, he worked on the Till, and Scott could talk about this, was the Till of Dirt record, which Kelly Schaefer from Atheist put together so he did a few things post retirement but yeah i would say and that's where we end the book we end the book on despise the sun and then like the after chapters are uh the tilted dirt a punk record or two that scott did uh, post retirement yeah but this good point but despise the sun i really i recorded that uh, till the dirt which i love and kelly i love the record but I just really worked on with the songs and things like that. And a gentleman in uh, Missouri mixed it and all that. Kelly actually recorded most of it. And then, um, so I sonically didn't have much to do with it, but despise the sun, which is a, 
which is a brutal as fuck. I mean, the Suffolk guys, I mean, to this day, Terrence still kills it. And that was a good record to spies the song. Deicide, then Sadist, and then probably the, yes, as David said, somewhere. But those were like the last three couple records, I think. So the last one for Roadrunner would have been Serpents of the Light? Yes. Yeah, because they were off. Sefo was off of Roadrunner by Despise, Despise the Sun. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, correct. Well, let's talk about it, guys. All right. So Serpents of the Light, 1997. Fourth Deicide record. The first two, of course, are widely heralded as masterpieces. We got self-titled. We got Legion. Then in 95, Once Upon a Cross comes out, and it kind of shifts them into a little bit more of a, a structured song style. You know, they, uh, they're they definitely um, slowed down a little bit, too, which, you know, I've heard that uh, that was not originally the case. Like, they had to slow it down because they originally were a lot, a lot faster. But Serpents of the Light is kind of, uh, it, it continues that that style that I feel like Once Upon a Cross started where the songs are a lot catchier. Not that they're we're still not making pop music, but they are catchier in uh, comparison to earlier Deicide records. And I think the biggest thing about Serpents of the Light is that uh, Glenn's vocals are a lot more, uh, I don't know what the word is, but they're like more articulated. You can kind of tell what he's saying. He's They're less guttural, maybe. And he does his uh, hissing snake voice a little bit less on that one, too. But going into Serpents of the Light, what was... Uh, what was your approach, Scott? Did you and were you and the band happy with what Once Upon a Cross did, and then wanted to kind of continue down that path, or do you remember what uh, that approach was? Yeah. So Once Upon the Cross, right, David? We had a lot of pressure from Monty. Yeah, there was probably more pressure. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure for Once Upon a Cross because Ryan Minos, no one liked the guitar tone on Legion, right? So. <laughs> Even if you and Scott, I'll jump in here. If you want to walk back, uh, no one ever liked the Hoffman's guitar tone. Okay, that's that's the root of the matter. Monty hated it. Scott hated it. Glenn and Steve were never too wild about it either. And Scott can probably elaborate here on the hours upon hours he spent in the studio trying to figure out a good cab and head combination with the Hoffman brothers to no avail. But once upon a cross was when Monty put his foot down and said, all right, you have to get the Hoffman brothers a good guitar tone. Scott, I don't care what you have to do, how much money we have to spend. Here's what we're going to do. And thankfully, Steve Ashim was very influential in helping Scott uh, help the Hoffman brothers figure out. Basically, and Scott, please correct me wrong, the Hoffman's tone was always so overcomplicated, right? They were they were too effects laid and they, they were trying to duplicate their live sound in the studio setting. And then finally, for Once Upon the Cross, it was just really simple. Was it's got a Marshall JCM with an overdrive pedal? And that's that's what this guitar sound was on Once Upon the Cross. And that's why it sounded so good. Yes, I, I think that's well said. Is it just whatever their live sound was, they just they tended to just say when they walked into the studio, that's my sound. That's it. I don't care if it's. Uh, whatever they said, that's my sound. So it, it, there wasn't a lot of negotiation or uh, trial, trying things and things like that. So you're correct with that, David. And then, yes, uh, we were allowed on Once Upon the Cross to try other uh, cabinet pedal and um, – amplifier combinations and to try and just get more of a straight ahead crunchier sound at the direction of the record label so yes yeah and once upon a cross was probably the best sounding deicide of the four that scott did you can debate on whether the songs are better than legion or self-titled they may not be i mean there are still some good Still some good songs on there, but sonically, it's it's definitely the the best sounding deicide, you know. But you know, to your question, Ryan and Scott can jump in here too. Is once we get to 1997, it was Glenn who called Scott and said, "Hey, uh, we want to work with you. We know you're retired or head towards retirement." Here, they they basically dragged Scott out of near retirement to do the album. And Scott can speak about this now. Um, your patience was pretty much shot, right, Scott? You weren't you weren't in in the mood for any BS from from anyone. 
Well, it was the end of my career. And, you know, listen, Glenn is my buddy and I love him to death. But, uh, you know, he had, there was a lot of strife, as David documents, between him and the label and funding and things like that. And um, it, it becomes difficult when you, your job is to come up with a product and uh, you're mad at your label basically because of money. And I get that because, like I said, is none of these guys are getting rich. The label's rich. So you're kind of caught in the middle of it. And, you know, I will say this is, you know, not many things I will say for myself is, but, you know, I, I was easygoing enough to say, hey, okay, whatever, fuck it today. We'll wait. Tom and Jim, I mean, to be honest, Tom's the coolest because he would like say, okay, Scott, you can fuck off the session for the day and we don't have to eat a thousand dollars, right? I mean, because that's, that's a whole other thing is like the session, the studio loses money. But like I said is, I have a lot of respect for Steve Machine and Glenn Benton. I love those guys, and I think they're incredible. Sacrificial Suicide, maybe the greatest song ever. But anyway, uh, you know, it, eventually it gets hard. Um, you know, but I can see why they want to come back is, you know, because like I said, is we had a good working rapport and I thought Glenn was killer and I thought Steve was killer. And like I said, even with the Hoffmans, I know we sound like we're giving them a hard time. I mean, they were integral part of the band, but at the same time is uh, they pretty much had to show up and just play one time and leave approach. Right. I mean, that was it to them is uh, I just play it and that's it. And, and that's her style. And that's OK. Maybe it's punk rock, you know. But but uh, so on Serpents, you know, it was a little bit more. You've done it a few times and maybe you're saying, hey, but, you know, we still decided to work it out. And I was working a day job and things like that. And, you know, they're not they're not they're not getting up at 6 a.m. to record anyway. So it worked out. Well, Serpents was recorded evenings and weekends, and yeah. we, we highlight this in the book. And um, the Hoffmans were up to their indecision again on guitar tones. And what's the line? Scott said, F it, I think is what you said to the Hoffman brothers. F it, it's your record. I don't care anymore. You decide to do whatever you want. That accounts for the guitar tone on Serpents for the Light. And I think it's yeah. ag agreed upon if Monty was here right now, he would agree with us too. The guitar tone's not very good on Serpents, but that's a function of A, the Hoffmans not being able to be flexible with Scott again, and B, Scott just being at the end of his rope saying, screw you guys. Uh, you, it's your tone. I'm at the end of my career anyway. You have to live with it. It's well said, David. But to circle back to Ryan's point earlier, is it, does it really fucking matter? I mean, when we look back on it historically, I mean, that's the way those guys were. And if the band's not going to sit there and say, they're not going to say, hey, whatever. Uh, listen, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to sit here and talk trash because I love those guys or whatever. But there are other bands that would say, dude, we're going to not, that's it. We're not going to do that. We're not going to settle. But they chose to do that, and that is their prerogative as a band. I mean, look, I'll step out and say this is, I don't think the Slayer guys had that great a guitar sound on certain things, but I think they like to play live. And no one's ever said Slayer's not the fucking greatest band ever. So in some ways, I don't know what to say looking back on it is. It is what it is, and yes, you try and make it better, but if somebody tells you they don't give a fuck or that's their style and you're fucking an idiot or whatever, it is. It's punk rock. It's thrash. It's death metal. 
Like I said, I don't. People, the kids are still going to love the songs because they love the song. So I don't. I always did see DSI as more punk rock, especially just I guess because they were so fast <laughs> compared to Suffocation and Obituary and Death and you know any yep. of those. Um, and what you're describing kind of sounds like a punk rock thing too. Like, oh yeah, we're just going to come in, we're going to record the guitars. Um, I'm not debating the sound of the guitar sounds you know very like tinny on that record but i will also say for the hoffmans that it's the only deicide album when the solos sound like they're even listening to the same song that they're playing on so i think that's cool yeah i, I would agree i would agree yeah they're they're pretty cohesive yeah they're you know the, the their soloing style is certainly you know scott mentioned this and he told me when we first started talking about dsa clearly they were very influenced by slayer and so as we know slayer solos were always sort of like kamikazes right the uh, carrie king was the master of the dive bomb on the whammy and solos that were in various different keys and jeff hammond probably thought his out a bit more the hoffmans were sort of the same way right just just going for it and so yeah there's probably a bit more structure on on serpents than than in previous records yeah scott is there something about serpents that you that you like that you look back on fondly i know that you're saying it's like the end of your career ultimately so is there is there uh good moments that you 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 were hanging out with people that you love steve and glenn oh yeah listen it's a great record i like it i have no problem uh, you know i i think it's good it has some great songs but I, I don't have any problem with it i'm just there was i mean i think one thing we haven't touched on directly david touched on in the book is you know, Glenn and the Hoffmans weren't getting along at all, <laughs> I don't think. So, I mean, that was a whole, you know, besides the tension between the label and then uh, Glenn and the Hoffmans, I mean, I don't know. Is It makes for a difficult recording, period. And, you know, the only thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, because Eric and – listen – I, I feel bad about this because Brian and Eric aren't around to defend themselves because they choose not really to talk about things anymore. Is but so it would be nice to hear their side of the story. But it, with anyone, if you just it's difficult if you come into the studio and you just say, "I want to play it in two minutes." The song's two minutes and twenty two seconds. You know. Throw a mic up, you get a level to tape, and you just play it one time, and you say, that's cool, I'm done. I don't know really, is it wrong? No. Is it great? Maybe. Most likely, it isn't great. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, it's nice if you have people that want to work on something and say, let's make it the best as possible. But I'm not saying I'm right. And they're not around to defend themselves. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I would end it on this is Steve Asheen is one of the most influential people in death metal. He wrote most of those songs. I know everybody thinks of Glenn and Glenn is the figure of deicide. You know what I mean? The face and those vocals and those lyrics. But Steve Asheen is really, you cannot overstate how important he was to that band and writing all those songs. Well, Glenn has a very like a uh, pro wrestler kind of vibe to him. <laughs> and you grew up in Florida, I think, or at least lived there for a long time. Were you ever into wrestling where it was huge down there? It's always been very huge here. Yes, it was even back with, you know, and the, Early days, it was Gordon Soley and uh, Dusty Rhodes and the great Malenko and stuff before it really became WWE and really over the top. But I mean, you used to watch your kid, you used to watch it on Saturdays and it was a shitty production with a couple cameras or whatever. And they smashed some folding chairs over their heads. But yes, yeah, Glenn is uh, that's a good now. I like that. Papa D. Glenn always was a fucking, he was a pain in the fucking ass. And I told you this day and you talk about it in the book, but it never was, he never was a dick to me. I mean, he was, but he wasn't. In other words, is I never took it personally. He just wanted his money from Roadrunner. Right. So I was the man in the middle who could 
he could use me for leverage to say, I'm not going to show up at the studio unless I get my money. And so to the same point is he never talked shit about me or whatever it is, but he could be a pain. But no, anyway, the, the one thing is, and I think Dave, I don't know if you put it in the book and, you know, or Ryan, but just let you know, like, you know, creatures of habit, I daydream you dead. That was written about about the Hawkins. That's right. And I mean, you know, obviously it's artistic hyperbole or lyrical or whatever. I don't know if he actually meant anyone, but I just meant it. That's how bitter he was at them. Right? In other words, there was animosity, hard feelings towards them. But you know, they were strange cats and um but they were killer. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, they were a good band. Thank you so much to Scott and David for coming on, and thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can get the book, The Scott Burns Sessions, 1987-1997, on decibelmagazine.com, and it is well worth the price of admission. Lots of cool stories, even more cool pictures if you don't know how to read, and it all and packaged nicely in a hardcover. It's going to look beautiful on your coffee table or bookshelf. But in the meantime, you can follow the show on Instagram at MeetMePod. Let me know what you thought of the episode. And, of course, you can hear episodes early, like I said before, on Patreon.com slash MeetMePod. In the meantime, my name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep. And, yes, that's the best that I can come up with. Bye. Bye.